Good morning, everybody. Everybody good? Open your Bibles to Judges chapter 3, the book of Judges. We are now in a message series entitled The Wild West of the Bible. We're talking about the book of Judges, comparing it to the Wild West, because the Wild West was a period in U.S. history when there was an entire section of our continent that was lawless, without government, every, every lawman, every uh, saloon girl, every cowboy for himself. It was wild and chaotic. And in the book of Judges, that's exactly how the people of God lived. They sometimes didn't even remember that they were the people of God. There was no king. There was no uh, guidance. There was nothing but chaos. And, uh, and the book of Judges captures that period of history really, really well. Uh, Judges chapter 3 is where I'll preach. But while you're with me, just turn to the very end of the book, the very last verse in the book of Judges, chapter 21, verse 25. This isn't the only place where this verse occurs in the book of Judges, but it's the theme. It recurs. You keep hearing this over and over and over, and this is the easiest place to turn and find it. Chapter 21, verse 25, it says, in those days Israel had no king. All the people did whatever seemed right in their own eyes. Okay, that's the theme, and that's the problem. I know in our day and age, it's like, man, what's wrong with that? Man, everybody you know, that's, what they, that's how they live. They're, they're living their truth. You know, they're, you know, you be you, all of that. But the scripture makes clear there is a way that seems right to you, but the end of that is your own destruction, you know? So as, as much as you think that you know enough and see enough to be the captain of your own ship, the you know, driver of your own life, understand you're going to drive this thing off a cliff every single time that's what happens when people do what seems right to them, and that's sort of the cycle that you see in, in the book of Judges. It just comes over and over and over. The people turn away from God, and they do whatever they want. They do what seems right in their own, uh, own eyes, right? And then God responds with judgment. This is what has to happen, and you'll see it over and over in Judges. The people turn away from God. They do what seems right to them. God will respond with judgment. But then after the people have suffered, after they realize the consequences of their choices, they cry out to God, they return to God, then God responds with mercy and deliverance. God will raise up a rescuer, God will raise up a judge who will come and make everything right, usher in a time of prosperity and peace, but guess what? The people go right back, they'll turn away again, they'll do whatever seems right in their own eyes, God responds with judgment, the people cry out, God responds with mercy and deliverance, uh, you know, rinse and repeat, you know? It's just exactly what happens all through Judges for the basic reason that they don't remember, uh, they don't learn anything, and for that reason they fall into this crazy cycle of falling away and then returning to God. So Judges chapter 3 is, is where we'll begin today. Last week we are in chapter 2 kind of setting up the beginning of the book, but now in chapter 3 we, we can read the story of the first three Judges. First three Judges. First Judges, Othniel. He's a really awesome judge. He's an awesome man. Uh, uh, he is the nephew of Caleb from the Old Testament. He brings uh, an amazing victory in battle and ushers in a period of peace for 40 years. Othniel is awesome. But we don't get a story. We don't really even get any details. We just know Othniel was the judge and he was awesome. We also meet another judge. The third judge is Shamgar. Shamgar, we get one verse. It tells us that he once killed 600 Philistines with a pointed stick which is awesome. I'd love to know that story, but we don't get that story. We don't even get any details. That's it. Shamgar was awesome. 
no details. But the story of Ehud is different. That's the second judge. The story of Ehud comes to us with shocking detail. And I mean shocking detail. How many of you already know the story of Ehud? Hands up. Very few of us. Okay. So the rest of you, you're in for such a treat. You have, you have no idea. Uh, this is a story that preachers don't preach. This is a story that they skip over in Sunday school. I mean, this is just a story that usually you can't read in public because the details are extra. I mean, you're about to learn things you never even wanted to ask about uh, the story of Ehud, but it's, uh, it's God's word. And I believe it's inspired of God, which means I believe every syllable of this story is God-breathed. So if we have these details, then that means God wants us to have these details. So I want you to read the story with me and begin to ask yourself, why are we being told that? Why is God telling us this? Uh, And you may learn some good lessons for your life. Judges chapter 3, I'm going to start in verse 12, the story of Ehud. This is is, uh, something else, y'all. Judges chapter 3, verse 12. Here's the cycle. Once again, the Israelites did evil in the Lord's sight, and the Lord gave King Eglon of Moab control over Israel because of their evil. Eglon enlisted the Ammonites and the Amalekites as allies, and then he went out and defeated Israel, taking possession of Jericho. Now, why is that significant? The city of Jericho, what does it represent? Remember when Joshua was leading the children of Israel, the first time they stepped foot in the promised land, Uh, It is Jericho that is the first city that they take. They march around the walls. The walls come tumbling down. Jericho is is important because it symbolizes their victory. But now you recognize that Moab retakes Jericho. So that just means that that victory is being reversed. It's a devastating kind of judgment on the people. And the Israelites, verse 14, served Eglon of Moab for 18 years. Verse 15. But when the people of Israel cried out to the Lord for help, the Lord again raised up a rescuer to save them. His name was Ehud, son of Gera, a left-handed man of the tribe of Benjamin. The Israelites sent Ehud to deliver their tribute money to King Eglon of Moab. So Ehud made a double-edged dagger that was about a foot long, and he strapped it to his right thigh, keeping it hidden under his clothing. He brought the tribute money to Eglon, who was very fat. Y'all catching on to the mountain of details we're getting here? Things you never even thought to ask. Verse 18, after delivering the payment, Ehud started home with those who had helped carry the tribute. But when Ehud reached the stone idols near Gilgal, he turned back. He came back to Eglon and said, I have a secret message for you. So the king commanded his servants, be quiet, and he sent everyone out of the room. Ehud walked over to Eglon, who was sitting alone in a cool upstairs room, and Ehud said, I have a message from God for you. As King Eglon rose from his seat, Ehud reached with his left hand, pulled out the dagger strapped to his right thigh, and plunged it into the king's belly. The dagger went so deep that the handle disappeared beneath the king's fat. You get it? So Ehud did not pull out the dagger and the king's bowels emptied. I I told y'all, I I told y'all. Then Ehud closed and locked the doors of the room and escaped down the latrine. 
After Ehud was gone, the king's servants returned and found the doors to the upstairs room locked. They thought that the king might be using the latrine in his room, so they waited. But when the king didn't come out, after a long delay, they became concerned and got a key. And when they opened the doors, they found their master dead on the floor. While the servants were waiting, Ehud escaped, passing the stone idols on his way to Syrah. When he arrived in the hill country of Ephraim, Ehud sounded a call to arms. He led a band of Israelites down from the hills. Follow me, he said, for the Lord has given you victory over Moab, your enemy. So they followed him. And the Israelites took control of the shallow crossings of the Jordan River across from Moab, preventing anyone from crossing. They attacked the Moabites and killed about 10,000 of their strongest and most able-bodied warriors. Not one of them escaped. So Moab was conquered by Israel that day. And there was peace in the land for 80 years. I told y'all a lot of detail in the story. Why? Some of you know Joe, Joe Bill Mean. Uh, grew up in Woodburn. Uh, was the son of our church. Great man. Um, Joe Bill's daughter Alyssa and her husband Kelly had bought a house that needed some uh, electrical updates uh, and so they called Joe Bill. Joe Bill could have done the whole thing perfectly by himself but he decided to just come and, and work alongside Kelly you know just work alongside him uh, kind of give him instruction along the way learn by doing um, also just kind of technical support you know so Joe Bill was just there to coach him um, there was a moment in the work when Joe Bill stepped aside, he came back to Alyssa and he said, just quietly, he said, now, Kelly has skipped a step that I have already explained to him. And he's about to take a shock. <laughs> and he said, I'm going to let him take the shock so he'll remember. So in a few minutes, you know, Kelly, <laughs> you know, yeah. and I have a feeling he remembered. Understand, it is difficult for us to remember. It's difficult. We make a joke about it. I mean, it kind of is funny. I mean, you got a house full today. Somebody in this room is going to leave their phone here because it happens nearly every Sunday. You know, you're going to get back home and then freak out and then call and see if I'll come back and meet you to get your phone because you can't live without it. You know, but you're going to do it. You're going to forget it. It's funny. Y'all forget phones. Some of you forgot your Bible back when Jimmy Carter was president. You haven't missed it yet. You know, your Bible is still on a shelf back there. You're going to miss it one day, and I'll have it for you on, on that day. Uh, some of you have left and forgotten your kids. I mean, it happens more than you think. I'm thinking some of y'all doing that on purpose, but you're going to come back and get them. Uh, and and uh, it's funny. We all forget things, and for the most part, we're forgetting small things that don't matter much. But... In Judges, there is this chronic forgetfulness with the people of God, and it is not something small. In, in the book of Judges, the people forget God. That They forget God. They begin to do what seems right in their own eyes, uh, not really acknowledging at all how what they're doing seems in God's eyes. And for that reason, there are devastating consequences to everything. Look at consequences. In the book of Judges, you're supposed to understand that these consequences, what happens when they disobey, what happens when they sin, what happens when they forget God, what happens as an outcome of their forgetfulness, you're supposed to connect with judgment. That's what the book of Judges does. It wants you to understand that, that when the people forget God, when they turn away from him, 
there are consequences to that, and those consequences are in the realm of what we would call God's judgment. Okay, now understand in the book of Genesis, in the book of Judges, and in your own life. God's judgment can take two forms. Again, it's in the book of Judges, but we're also talking about your life. So understand, the first kind of judgment is God's active judgment. The second is, say the word, it's passive. God's active and God's passive judgment. You have probably seen and experienced God's judgment in, in both of these ways. Now, active judgment is probably more rare, and we don't see it as often in the book of Judges. It's not absent. Uh, but it is a little more rare. God's active judgment is when God intervenes. God steps in and God brings punishment that is outside the normal pattern of cause and effect. You know what I mean? In other words, the only reason this happened is because God steps in and directly makes it happen. This is when, you know, like the, the earth opens up and swallows you. You know, that sort of thing. Or God smites you with plague or pestilence. The clouds open, the lightning strikes. We're talking about God's direct and active actions to judge people. And God can actively judge. God can directly judge, make no mistake. When he does that, understand, he steps in. And he interrupts that normal uh, pattern of cause and effect. The only reason that this happens, God made it happen. All right. Now, the second kind of judgment is more common in the book of Judges, and I would say more common in our lives, and that's God's passive judgment. This means God does not step in and interrupt the pattern of cause and effect. God just lets it happen. In other words, God will sometimes stand back and let you take the shock. You know what I mean? You follow me? God will stand back and let you just take the shock. So that you will learn, so that you will remember. So what I'm saying is, it's it's what happens every time you do this. It's a natural consequence. It's cause and effect, but it's also God's passive judgment. God's letting this happen. God's letting it happen. Now, this is exactly how our story begins today. Once again, here's the cycle. The Israelites did evil in the Lord's sight, and the Lord gave King Eglon of Moab control over Israel because of their evil. If you were simply an historical bystander and you saw that Moab took over Israel, you would not question that. That looks like just ordinary cause and effect. That's just how the world works. Israel is no kind of country at this point. They have no king. They have no leader. They have no military. They have no strategy. They have almost nothing. Moab is a superpower in the region. King Eglon is a powerful man, and so it's no surprise that Moab oppresses Israel. That's just how the world works. That's how history works. But you and I understand, because we're able to see God's view of things, that this isn't just simply cause and effect. This is also God's judgment. Moab is oppressing Israel because Israel has turned away from God. You need to be able to draw a straight line back from what's happening to to, to God's judgment. This is judgment on his people. You following me? So that's how the story goes. It's, It's God's judgment. Verse 15, but when the people of Israel cried out to the Lord for help, the Lord again raised up a rescuer to save them. The cycle, right? When they finally call out to God for help, and I stress the word finally, how long were they oppressed by Moab? 18 years. Yeah, good reading. 18 years. 18 years. What takes them so long? 
That's insane. The turning point is when they repent. The turning point is when they recognize that where we are is a direct result of the path we have chosen, and we could choose another path. You know, where we are is a direct outcome of the choices we have made. We can make another choice. We can turn back to God. It takes 18 years for them to reach that rather obvious conclusion. And we look at that and think, my goodness, that's insane. But honestly, is that not the whole story of your life? We are so stubborn. We are so stubborn. We know the Lord, and most of you are church people. You know exactly what God's asking you to do. You know the difference between right and wrong, but you always, always seem to go the other direction. You just want to do what seems right to you or what sounds good to you, and nobody can tell you anything. How many times have you been married? How many times have you just blown your whole life up? You never seem to learn, and yet, for whatever reason, you just keep on digging the hole, the hole you're stuck in. You just don't know how to stop digging. All you have to do is stop. All you have to do is turn back to God. All you have to do is cry out for help. What is wrong with you? It's the same story here. Finally, when the people of Israel cry out to the Lord for help, the Lord raises up a rescuer to save them, and his name is, say it, Ahud, say it, Ahud, yeah, his name is Ahud, and this is his story, told in uh, amazing detail. <laughs> Why do we need to know so much about Ahud? The story just begins by saying the Lord raised him up. His name was Ahud, son of Gera, a left-handed man of the tribe of Benjamin. That's kind of funny, actually. Benjamin, as a Hebrew name, it means son of the right hand. So Ahud is the left-handed, you know, member of the tribe of the right-handed people. You know, it's just like, so we're told that. Understand, it's not just that he's left-handed in the way that some of you are lefties. You know, he just prefers to use his left hand for things. In the ancient world, nobody used their left-handed. You just didn't. You, you did not do that. Um, and I'll try to say it without saying it. In, in the ancient world, the left hand was reserved for personal hygiene before there was toilet paper. Okay? I mean, I'm just telling you, it's history, y'all. Um, there wasn't always toilet paper, but there has always been a left hand. <laughs> so people used their left hand and everybody just agreed, we're going to use our left hand for that. So when I say, please pass the cornbread, use your right hand to pass me the cornbread. I mean, you know, you know what I'm saying? To this day, it's why a left-handed handshake is like, you know what? Like, we don't shake. It goes back to that. You know, in the ancient world, the left hand was, was preserved for certain inglorious tasks. And for that reason, everybody uses their right hand for most everything. You see, so we're not just saying that he prefers his left hand. Nobody's going to go out into the ancient world using their left hand if they have a choice. The actual Hebrew, remember the book of Judges is written in the Hebrew language, not English. And, and the Hebrew word here doesn't say he's left-handed. It says that he is impeded in his right hand. So he's handicapped. For whatever reason, um, Ehud has a right hand that is permanently disabled. He can't use it. And so for that reason, he's stuck using his left hand for everything. You, you see that? He's permanently disabled. He can only use his left hand, which sets him back in a lot of ways in, in, in his culture. Why do we need to know that? It, it's all this detail that just keeps, keeps pouring out here. 
Uh, Ehud was a left-handed man. The Israelites sent Ehud to deliver their tribute money to King Eglon of Moab. Now, the, the tribute money, one of the ways that Moab obviously keeps the Israelites weak is by overtaxing them. And so this tribute money is their, you could just think of it as their taxes. And, and Eglon just forces them to pay enormous taxes. And that just keeps them poor and it keeps them powerless. So this is a job nobody wants. It's also a dangerous job. In the ancient world, let's just say, nobody wants to be walking down the public street with a bag full of money. But this is what they're asking Ehud to do. Ehud has a very dangerous mission in a place where you know there are robbers everywhere. You know, behind every corner, around behind every bush, there's a robber. Ehud's got to carry this giant bag of money, and everybody knows what he's doing. I mean, you know, so... Why did they choose him? I mean, somebody's got to go. But why choose Ehud? Basic reason, he's expendable. You know what I mean? He's like a one-handed guy. Like, he can't juggle. He's obviously not going to come back and start a wallpaper business. I mean, you understand? He's just got one hand that he can use, and it's his left hand, you know? And so if Ehud goes out and doesn't come back, nobody's going to miss him. You with me? He's just expendable. So the story goes on. He's going down to take the tribute money. So before he goes, verse 16, he does something interesting. He makes himself a shiv. He makes himself a knife, a dagger, about a foot long. Makes it itself at home. I don't know if he's good at making knives, but he makes one. Why does he do this? Why does he make a knife? Now, you're thinking to yourself, well, Pastor Tim, we read this story. He's making a knife, a 12-inch knife, because he's going to go to Moab and pop the blimp. You know, he's going to go kill the king. And so he's making this knife and strapping it to his leg because he's going to be like an assassin. No. (laughs) I mean, yeah, that is going to happen. But that's not what Ehud's thinking. I mean, y'all, we know that God raises him up, and we know that he's the new judge, and, and we know that, but Ehud does not know that. He doesn't know that. So why does Ehud make for himself a knife? Because he's about to carry a giant bag of money down a road that everybody knows has robbers. It's for self-protection. He just makes a knife for protection. And we're given all of this detail. He makes a 12-inch knife, and he puts it on the inside of his right thigh. Now, why is that? Because he's left-handed, y'all. I mean, it's like, it's, it's, it's the place where the knife becomes handy for him to grab it with his left hand. So, again, all of these details. Uh, he, he makes a knife to, to protect himself. But now, stop right here. I, I love the way he has no idea. He makes that knife at home in his own shop. He has no idea how, you know, before supper time, he's going to use that knife. And he has no idea he's about to lose that knife either. He has no idea what's going to happen to this knife, you know. He has no idea. But, but l- let me say it this way. He doesn't know, but God knows. God knows what he's doing in Ehud's life. Even when Ehud doesn't know what he's doing in, in, in his life, and the same thing is true for you. God knows what he's doing in your life even when you don't know what God's doing in your life. Now, do you understand this? I don't know that you do. God knows what he's doing in your life. Now, some of you right now are listening to me thinking, Pastor Tim, I don't think God knows what he's doing in in, in my life. It, It doesn't seem like there's a plan. 
It all just seems really random and crazy and chaotic, and I'm not sure God's, you know, got a plan for me. I, 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 don't, I, don't, I don't think so. Some of you right now, you don't have any idea what's happening in your life. You, your marriage is falling apart. Uh, you've lost your job. Uh, nothing seems to be going well, and you're thinking to yourself that there is no plan. Anybody ever taught a teenager how to drive? Have you taught a teenager to drive? Yeah, you just want to just sort of raise your hand to praise God that you survived that. It's crazy. I've driven my whole life. I've never been afraid to get in a car until the first time I sat in the passenger seat and my son's going to drive. And then all of a sudden, you're just thinking, oh, 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 you know, Jesus, take the wheel. Jesus, you know, take the It's terrifying because he has no idea what he's doing. You know, he's all gas, no brake, and just, and I'm just like, ah, ah, you know, it's just crazy. It's the most terrifying thing to be a passenger, and you're thinking, I don't know if I can trust this, you know, this kid to drive the car I'm in, you know? And sometimes in our lives of faith, it's, if God's got the wheel, it feels like he's a teenager learning how to drive. You know what I mean? It just seems like I would not have taken this turn. I would not be going this fast. I would not be going this slow, you know. I think I would have stopped here. I think I would have driven right through that. I mean, you know, God doesn't do anything at all like what we would do. You don't know what he's doing with your life, do you? You wonder what he's doing. Thing is, Ehud has no idea. Um, He's the rescuer. Now, if you said, Ehud, you're the rescuer, what would Ehud have said? I mean, you know, there's no way. There's just no way. Ehud's, not, Ehud's the guy you choose if you have a task where you don't care if he comes back alive. You know, Ehud is expendable. He's got nothing. He's, he, he can't lead an army into battle, y'all. He's only got one useful hand. His right hand is handicapped. He, he's got nothing. He's, he's one-handed. He's got a homemade knife. He made his own knife. How in the world does that qualify him to be used in any way for God? Not to mention to be used in an amazing way. He has no idea, y'all. I mean, in one day, if Ahud had any idea what he's going to do this day, by the end of the day, he's going to lead the army in a battle, and 10,000 men are going to fall, and he's going to usher in 80 years of peace. I think he would have eaten a bigger breakfast. If he'd have known that, but he didn't know. He just steps out into another day doing the job that nobody else wanted, packing the money. He's got the knife on his thigh. He has no idea what God's doing, and you don't either. But just because you don't know doesn't mean God doesn't know. And just because you don't think it's very likely that God would choose you and use you, I'm telling you, God is choosing you, and God wants to use you. And I know. You're thinking, no, the God's not going to use me because you've got, like in your mind, you've got a whole list of reasons why God can't use you. You've got like this anti-resume, you know, like instead of listing your qualifications, you've got a list of disqualifications, all the reasons why you think God won't use you. So if you're Ahood, you stand there before God, you just show him your gimpy right arm and your homemade knife and you think, surely God will understand, I am not rescuer material, you know? And that's what you do. You stand before God and you just try to tell God, God, I'm too young. I'm too young. You can't use me. I'm, I don't even have an eighth grade you know, education. Yeah, I, I just warned the young people in this church, I'm praying for y'all. 
Like, and I don't mean that like, I've, yes, I've always prayed for the youth of this church, but I'm praying differently for the youth of this church right now. I'm praying, God, set your lives on fire. I really am. I'm really tired of one generation just becoming, you know, as, as apathetic and passive as a previous generation. I'm ready to see some young men and women stand up and change this world for Jesus. I'm really, and I want them to come out of this church. I'm praying about that. So be warned. <laughs> too young. Don't ever say you're too young. What are you talking about? I think all of the judges in the book of Judges, I think most of them are young people. You understand that? Young people. God didn't raise up the parents, the grandparents, because they had already turned away from God. God raised up the ones with soft hearts and courage, you know? That's what I'm praying for you. But at the same time, don't say he won't use you because you're old, because I can show you stories where he uses old people too. Abraham and Sarah, you know? I mean, when God told Sarah she would have a baby, her dentures fell right out of her mouth. You know, she's just like... You know, and God uses people. And, and you just think, well he, well, he can't possibly use me. You know, I'm not anybody special. You know, you're thinking that maybe God, you know, just passes the magnet uh, 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 across the sand of the congregation and all the gifted and talented people just rise up. But that's not how it works. That's not at all how it works. In his book, The Circle Maker, Mark Batterson says this, God doesn't call the qualified. He qualifies the call. See, y'all are, amen, oh, that's good, that's good, that's good. But what does it mean? God doesn't call the qualified. You see, that's what you've been thinking your whole life, that, that there's going to be somebody better suited to do what God needs done than you. So therefore, God's always going to overlook you and tap somebody else on the shoulder. But that's not how this works. God's tapping you on the shoulder. He has something for you. And, and you just stop right there. Just stop right there. Don't start telling me all the reasons. Well, you know, Pastor Tim, you, he can't use me. I'm divorced. <laughs> yeah, why don't you just say that one more time while God's listening so he can laugh at you while I laugh at you. I mean, what, what, what's that supposed to mean? Like you're divorced and now God can't use you? Have you read your Bible? Like King David maybe never got a divorce. He was an adulterer and a murderer. He didn't get a divorce, but if he didn't like this wife, he just shoved her to the back of the harem and got another wife. Not a husband of the year here. I mean, we, we mentioned Abraham. Abraham, our father in the faith. He's a pretty good father in the faith, but he was a terrible husband. Read the stories. He's an awful husband. I mean, whatever you say that you think disqualifies you, I, I promise you, it's not going to matter because God's not choosing you because somehow, because somehow you're strong. God's choosing you because he's strong. God's not choosing you because you're qualified. Understand, he qualifies the call. He's going to call you first, and then he's going to give you everything you need to do his purpose. He's going to give it to you. No matter how weak you are, you're going to do this in his strength. He's not calling you because you somehow stand, you know, head and shoulders above all the other candidates. No, no, no. God is going to use you because God delights in using us. And it has nothing to do with my power, my strength, my wisdom. It all comes from God anyway. You understand? So Ehud has no idea how God's going to use him. He has no idea whatsoever. He makes that little handmade knife in case he has to defend himself behind the Waffle House, you know. He has no idea what that knife's going to do. God doesn't call the qualified. He qualifies the called, and I think he's calling you. 
What's that going to look like? Well, for Ehud, uh, we know because we have a story with a lot of detail. <laughs> There's just a lot of details here. It's, it's, it's amazing. Um, Ehud is left-handed. He's somehow crippled in his right hand. We, we know that. He, he makes his own dagger for self-defense. He puts it on the inside of his right thigh. Just a detail that makes sense because he's left-handed. It's got to be here so he can grab. That, that makes sense. Um, honestly, in my own study, it's that detail in verse 19. Uh, it seems like every time Ehud walks down the road, we have to hear that he passes these stone idols at Gilgal. And those stone idols come up two different times in the story. And it's that repetition that made me wonder, why is that important? Why is that a landmark? Like that's a detail there that I'm not sure about. It's, it's a landmark. I mean, he's on a country road. If you're walking through the country, you're going, he probably passed 13 Dollar General stores, you know, and at least one Walmart, but we don't hear about that. We just hear that he passes the stone idols at Gilgal. Why, why, why is that detail important? And then all of this detail about the king, the, the, the fact that he's fat, do I need to know that? I mean, isn't that sort of impolite to point that out? We're all a little sensitive after the lockdown, the pandemic. We've all put on a little bit. I mean, we don't really want to talk about somebody in this way, but the Bible just says, I mean, this dude is fat. I mean, the way the Bible explains it, he's like Jabba the Hutt in the Old Testament. I mean, this dude is ginormous fat, fat. Do I need to know that? And then with Eglon, it just goes on. The inglorious way in which he dies and I know that y'all don't really want to go there with me, but the Bible gives us these details, and you got to ask why. Why do I need to know that he was so fat that that knife just got swallowed in the in the rolls of blubber? Like you know, you know, like what? I mean, that's crazy. Also, if you're a fourth grade boy, that's really awesome. Y'all know that's awesome, right? I mean. That is just awesome. And in Sunday school, like back in the old days, when I first discovered this story, I thought, man, I want to, you know, I, I grew up in the days when we didn't have like screens and stuff. We had flannel boards. Remember like a flannel board? And I just thought, man, I want to see the flannel board for this story right here, you know. You know. Uh, but it's not just that. Uh, and, and I'm not adding anything to this story, you all. It's, it's here. Um, the English translation tries to sanitize it because they're afraid that you can't take the truth. Um, somehow, when he, you know, stabs this, you know, king, uh, he does some sort of intestinal surgical procedure, which I'm not sure I understand, but the, the bowels are ruptured. And so the scripture says, New Living Translation says, the king's bowels emptied. That's a really good way to say it. The Hebrew says more than that. It, it really, really does. Uh, um, I mean... I mean, when, when Ehud stabs this, this king, that, that king just blows mud. I, I mean, can I say that? I mean, my wife said don't say that. Um, <laughs> but y'all, 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 like, like it's, ex, it's, it's extra, it's extreme, I know, and you're thinking, we don't need to know this, but it's in the Bible. Like, it's, it, it, is, it is a river, um, and, and it's extreme. And, and on top of that, what happens next, um, 
Y'all know about certain things. I have to explain to you. There's a smell to it. There's a smell. And that smell becomes important in the scripture. And I know your English translation thinks you can't handle this. But it's the reason all the, all the men who are supposed to be bodyguards for King Eglon, it's the reason why they don't go in that door. You know, because they're out there and they go. <laughs> and they make assumptions. They just assume that King Eglon is taking a royal squat. You know, I mean, <laughs> y- y- y'all know, they just assume. I'm, I'm not making a joke. I'm telling you, you have to understand. This is a detail in the Bible story. They, they get some olfactory evidence that probably he's on his porcelain throne. And so for that reason, they don't knock. You just don't. You know, there's certain things a man should be able to do in privacy, and they decide, you know, whatever the king had last night, let's leave him alone until he's finished with his business. And that's important in the story. It's a detail in the story. They refuse to knock on the door because they don't want to disturb the king because it smells like he is busy. Why? Why do I need to know that? Why do I need to tell you that? It's the details, you all. And I think part of the importance of this story, and I remind you, I think every syllable of this chapter is God-breathed. And I think there's something about the details of this story that, are, that you're supposed to wonder. I think the lesson here is actually throughout Scripture. It's the same lesson that's stated very clearly in Romans chapter 8 verse 28. This is a verse that you know. It's a verse that some scholars argue about. Lots of theological questions here, but I just, I'm asking you to read this verse and believe this verse for what it just says, you know. And what it says is we know that God causes everything to work together. Y'all with me? God causes everything. I'm talking about the details of things. I don't know how you think about God and how you think God does his work, but God doesn't do his work up here at somehow 30,000 feet, you know, just kind of working on the big things. No, when God does his thing, God gets down in the details of things. God sees the details, the the, the minutia, and God provides for you. And when God provides for you, he's going to provide in every single detail. He's not going to forget something. Understand? We know that God causes everything. There's no random things here. Are are you with me? Do you understand what I'm saying? All of the details of your life. It's not that these these just weird things happen. And then, well, my goodness, you know, who would ever thought? I'm telling you, God thought. God thought. God thinks ahead. God sees ahead. And for that reason, things will line up in ways that you can't even explain. And sometimes the, the degree, the level to which he goes to work everything out for you, you'll never even completely comprehend. All of the ways in which he just lines things up in order to take care of you, in order to provide for you, in order to work out his purpose for your life. We know that God causes everything to work together for the good of those who love God and are called according to his purpose for them. Do you believe that? Do you believe that for yourself? Do you know that God will cause everything to work together? Everything's in all the details will just line up. So Ehud is this guy that's got this gimpy right arm and he uses his left hand and and you think, my goodness, why do we need to know that? Why is that important? That is important because that's his weakness. 
His entire life, that's how you spot Ehud. He's a handicapped guy. He's the gimpy guy. He's a left-handed guy. But I'm telling you, his whole life, that would have disqualified him. But this particular day, this is what causes him to step into God's purpose for his whole life. God needs Ehud. God needs a man that doesn't look like a threat. Do you understand what I'm saying? Nobody thinks that a left-handed guy, you know, with, with, with a crippled right arm, nobody thinks he's going to be the assassin. So nobody's going to worry if he gets close to the king. As a matter of fact, King Eglon sends everybody out of the room and leaves himself alone and vulnerable in the room with an Israelite. He only did that because Ehud looks like, you know, he is no danger. That left-handedness is not an accident. It's not some small thing. It is a weakness that God turns into strength in the course of a day. Do you see that? Only God can do that. God turns your weakness into strength. The one thing that sounds like it should disqualify him, it's the one thing that says, yes, you are the man. You're the man. He makes this knife, puts it on the inside of his right thigh because that's the only place a left-handed man could put a knife, but... But that also means, you know, if, if the bodyguards did frisk him for weapons, nobody's going to look there. I mean, you know, nobody's looking here for a weapon because that's dumb unless you're left-handed. But nobody suspects the left-handed guy. All of these details, you see, they just all work right in a line. Those crazy stone idols at Gilgal, that's what got to me. The rest of it I could deal with, but I'm like, why do you keep telling us, Lord, about the stone idols? Why is it every time he walks down the road and passes those idols, we have to hear about it? Something about those stone idols, y'all. Notice how the story goes. Ehud goes to Eglon. He makes the payment. He does what he's called to do, and then he turns around, and he's going home. That's why I say he, he wasn't planning to be the assassin. He's just doing his job and going home. It's on the way home when he passes those stoned idols one more time. And it's at the idols where it says he turns back. Like something about that spot. And it's a detail that you're tempted to blow right past. But I'm saying, why don't you slow down right there and, and, and really ask yourself, why that spot? Why do we keep hearing about that spot? And what is it about that spot that makes Ehud get there one more time and say, I am, I'm going back? Gilgal. Joshua chapter 4. The children of Israel are coming into the promised land. They walk across the Jericho River on dry ground. Remember that story? Their entrance into the promised land. And while the river is still divided, while the riverbed is still dry, it's a miracle. Joshua says, all right, boys, go get 12 giant rocks out of the bottom of that river. These are rocks that nobody's ever seen, y'all, because they were at the bottom of the river. Nobody's ever seen the, 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 the river dry, you know? But there it is. So Joshua says, right, I want to take 12 of the biggest rocks out of the bottom of that river, and let's put them up here on dry ground. Let's stack them. So from now on, when anybody gets to this spot, y'all with me? Anybody gets to this spot, they will see these stones, and they will say to themselves, what do these stones mean? And then when they ask, you tell them, this is the place where God brought his people into the promised land. This is where we walked across on dry ground. This is who God is, and this is what God can do. Understand? Those stones were meant to be a, a reminder. That's what happened to Gilgal. That's what happened at that spot. Only now, 
years later, what's standing there are pagan idols. Stone pagan idols in the very holy spot where the memorial stones should stand. It's pagan idols. And the Bible wants you to notice that because it keeps telling you that they're standing there. And I'm telling you, Ehud passes them one time, but he won't pass them twice. Second time he gets there, he stops, he looks at those idols, and he turns back around and he goes back. What happens? It's at that moment that something in Ehud, I mean, he wasn't any kind of judge. He wasn't any kind of brave man. He wasn't anything to anybody. But when he gets at that point and he sees those idols, at that moment something rises up in him. Call it anger if you want to. I mean, for the first time in his life, he's mad enough to care about something. And and at this point, he's mad enough to care, and he cares enough to turn around and risk his life. Do you understand? This is not some insignificant detail. Those stone idols in that spot, they mean something. Ehud sees them, and he can't take it anymore. He goes back. He knows what he's got to do. And it's at that moment he becomes the judge. You know, it's at that moment he steps into God's purpose at the stone idols, you know. So he goes back to the kings. I, 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 I got a secret message for you. The king says, well, I'd love to hear it. Everybody get on out of here. It's a secret, you know. Leaves himself alone in the room with a left-handed man because who's afraid of the left-handed man? Except that this one's Ehud. He's got a purpose now. He's got a knife on his right thigh. He reaches in, pulls it out, <laughs> stabs the king. You know what happens next. <laughs> Bows empty. The room is filled with the stench. Pastor, why are you telling us this again? Because you all, it's that stench that makes the bodyguards, that makes the men of England, it makes them stay outside. That They won't come in now because they, they smell and they assume that, that the king should not be disturbed. And, and because they wait, Ehud gets away. Do you understand how this works? He escapes. One old man climbs down the gutter pipe and then runs back to Ephraim. And he goes to the Israelites and he says, you know, let's, let's go. Let's go. Let's go. Let's go fight. I mean, they haven't fought for years. They have no army. But he says, come on, let's go. Let's fight. And they go. They follow. They follow the one-handed man that doesn't even have a knife anymore. They follow him into battle. 10,000 Moabites are, 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 are wiped out that day. Not one of them escapes. And that ushers in 80 years of peace. I love that so much. Ehud had no idea. No idea what God was going to do. I'm telling you, if he'd have known what that day was going to be. I mean, if you know how God can take 18 years of oppression and erase that in one day. If you knew how God can take your whole life of weakness and handicap and reverse that in one day. If you had any idea what this God can do. If you had any idea how he wants to use you. Any idea how you could change things, how God could use you to change your family, God could use you to change your school, God could use you to change this church, God could use you to change the world. God makes everything work together, all of the details of your life, there's no accident, there's nothing random, understand? Nothing in the world can happen that God just can't fold into his purpose for you. Every single detail, you understand. You don't know what he's doing, but he knows what he's doing. 
You don't know why it's happening, why it turns out like this, why he made you the way he made you, why you're weak in the places that you're weak. And I'm just telling you, in your weakness, he is strong. It's a whole lot of detail. Why do we need to know all of that? So that you will know that God is a God of detail. God is a God who sees and knows and provides and works in the details of your life. He is down in the small things, understand? He won't forget anything. Actually, the problem has never been that God forgets. The problem is the way that we forget. All the things that we should actually remember including the most important thing at all, the Lord our God. Of all the things that you can forget, don't forget who he is and what he can do. And don't you think for a moment he can't use you to do this. Don't forget. Pray with me.